How's it going, everybody, and welcome to episode number 63 of Master My Garden podcast. Now, this week's episode is with Hester Ford. Now, there's a lot to talk about with Hester. So, Hester has an open garden down in Cork, it's Cochin Garden. Her garden has been featured in several of the you know, sort of established garden magazines, the RHS Garden Magazine. It's been featured in Gardens Illustrated. She also is a snowdrop collector, a daffodil collector, which I think was her first passion. Uh, specializes in woodland plants, very, uh, very big into collecting cannas and exotics as well. And she's a member of a couple of garden societies, this Cork Alpine Hardy Plant Society and an active member of the RHSI. So there really is a huge amount to talk about there. So Hester, you're very, very welcome to Master My Garden podcast. Um, Good morning, John. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah, as I said, there's a lot to talk about there. And if we, I suppose, talk about them all at length, we'll be here until tomorrow. So what we'll we'll do, I suppose, firstly, is if we if we do, if you give us a sort of a run through your garden, so Cushing Garden, and tell us a little bit about it, where it's situated, and then that might lead us into all the other sort of avenues that we want to talk about today. Well, John, um, Cochin is situated here. I'm just looking out our front window now, looking out on the estuary of Cork Harbour, and we're on the eastern end of it, and we are here since 1988. And um, it has, I suppose, really southwesterly aspects, so it's quite a windy, exposed garden. So I suppose the first thing here we had to do was to build up a really good shelter belt, and that actually is a beach hedge now, which um, encloses the whole the whole garden. So the whole the site here overall is a third of an acre, including the house. So it's not a very big garden, but it's jam packed full of plants. And when I started here, I suppose my vision for the garden was to have something like Beth Chateau, who was a big influence on me. And I suppose Helen Dillon would have been another major influence. So a garden really for the four seasons. So okay. the garden is, is it's it's really from the trees to the shrubs to the perennials down to the bulbs. Okay. So you have something for all the seasons. Yeah. And the the garden obviously is it an open garden? I know obviously t- times are a bit strange at the moment, but you well, op- you open it up to the public, yeah? We do. We normally open kind of end of January and most of February for snowdrops. And yep. when times were good, we would normally have um, a charity day. My husband is very involved with um, uh, bringing sick children to Lourdes. And we okay. would have an open day to raise funds for that. He, he does that cycle every two years. They cycle for seven days, beginning in the north of France and ending up in Lourdes on Easter Saturday. So we would raise funds for that every year. So obviously with the last two years, that hasn't happened. Yeah. And we would normally open again then in May and right through to the end of September. And if okay. at all possible, every year during that, we would have an open day here for the Irish Hospice Foundation, which is another um, charity that's very close to our hearts. So we would try and run that most years as well. And other than that, it's open to the public. But mainly for me, um, it would be overseas visitors. And okay. was, yeah, we're very bereft of visitors and I, I'm not the only one. So is everybody in the last. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully we can get back. We can get back to yeah. those visit- visitors coming back. Um, looks at this point may may not be much this year, but nonetheless, the garden has to be tended to. And I was a bit surprised. You said you're you're very exposed there, and you also said that that can as an exotics are one of your your passions. So. There must be, even though you're exposed wind-wise, is it quite temperate down there? It's very temperate. I suppose we really have um, that influence from um, the Gulf Stream. Yes. Uh, even though it's a very quite exposed garden, once the, the temperatures rise here, um, it's quite a very warm garden. It's unusually dry. The whole site here originally would have been a quarry area, so most of the soil we, we have brought in and made the beds but we're blessed with really good drainage. So uh, I grow, you know, a great number of bulbs that might not succeed in other areas. You know, drainage is, is, is very good here. And then I suppose as the temperatures rise, I can grow a lot of the cannas and gingers, um, stay outdoors, uh, you know, the 12 months of the year, whereas other, you know, gardens in other parts of the country would have to bring them in. We're lucky oh. enough. Yeah. Yeah, for the most part, like, Pretty much everywhere else in the country, you would have to take them in. So to be able to leave them out, like that's that's a huge plus, isn't it? It, it really it takes is. out. No, the, the very tenders will come in, and I do have um, a polytunnel, and you know the very tender ones will be brought to the polytunnel and rest into the greenhouse. But um, mostly, I find ninety nine percent of gingers, in particular, the hedetiums, are totally hardy here with us, and some of the cannas, not all. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so within your garden then, so you're opening early in the year and you have the, the snowdrop, which is a, a huge feature of your garden. You're a collector of snowdrops. And I know that in conjunction with Altamount, you, you're involved in the the snowdrop festival every year and you, you run your own snowdrop days. So how big of a collection have you and, and you know, what, what sort is renting within that that's very unusual well i suppose to collect i started collecting snowdrops i really can't remember exactly when but it's a good 20 25 years ago so at this stage um the garden is pretty full it's quite difficult now to find spaces for for (laughs) new but you'll always squeeze a new one in yeah um both myself and robert miller had this idea of wanting to share this love of snowdrops and, and early spring bulbs with the general public. And there was a demand there, we thought, at the time for it. So next year, we'd be heading into our 10th year of having the um, Snowdrop Gala and other spring treasures. This year, we had it online uh, in um, early February, and it was very successful. There was huge demand for tickets for it, and we were limited to 100 people, and really within a few days, it was sold out. So next year, speakers are already booked and um, we were to have um, Tom Coward, who's the head gardener at Gravetime Manor, Okay. Uh, which I've been, you know, hugely looking forward to. I'm a huge fan of the gardening at Gravetime Manor and Tom is an, an, an expert in all gardening areas and he trained at Dixter and he has this wonderful flow of planting that you can see um where you know it came with him from Dixter now to Gravetime Manor and he's hugely looking forward to Ireland he hasn't been and kind of maybe finding out a bit uh, about William Robinson 
this was his private personal garden, which is now a garden that's uh, still owned by a private group, but the garden is open to the public at times. So he's he's one of our guest speakers next year. So hopefully, fingers crossed, that we will be able to go ahead and, uh, you know, that the general public will be able to come next year. Yeah, that'd um, be brilliant. Yeah, as regards snowdrops, there's always, you know, something new. Um, at the moment, the green tipped ones are my favourites. Um, now, at this time of the year, I'm actually, because they're just finished flowering, I'm lifting and dividing them, you know, and spreading them more into the garden and just giving them a good feed of liquid seaweed as well, which will kind of help the bulb develop more for the coming year now that they're beginning to die back. Um, and just yeah. out of personal interest, you're giving them a feed of liquid seaweed after you after yeah. you move them. Yes, and even the ones that I'm not moving, they're all being fed now. In fact, I'm feeding all my bulbs now, um, all the narcissus as well, um, because like bulbs need feeding. And it was something I always did. And I had become, I suppose, a little not, careless, just not having time. I suppose the, the upside of being locked at home really is you, you just get all these jobs done because you're not, you know, heading off somewhere. Yeah, you're not like, rushing like, around. But that that's interesting yeah. about feeding bulbs because for the most part, people sort of say you don't need to feed them. And and you're, let me say, a bulb expert and you're saying that they definitely should be, should oh, be fed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, they need, you know, high potash really that once they're starting to emerge into flower and then dying back, they, the bulb needs that to take it back down with it to, you know, reproduce really good for the following year right because i got some about eight different types of snowdrops off robert a couple of weeks back and mm -hmm. and i planted them but i haven't fed them but i do have liquid seaweed here so i'll definitely definitely yeah. give them a feed of i that. find liquid seaweed just it's a, it's a it's a brilliant feed for anything i i like i do a huge amount of summer containers in the garden and that's my go-to feed i used to use tomato feed which was pretty good as well but there's no comparison. Liquid seaweed is by far the better yeah, I think feed. the plant health is so much better with seaweed for some reason. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it really is super. Now, I know we've obviously snowdrops is, is important for you, but daffodils was your kind of first love in terms of collecting bulbs. And, yes. And they'll be, well, they're, I suppose they're, they're doing really well for the last few weeks and there's probably another good few weeks left in them. So in terms yeah, of collection. Um, yeah, Narcissus start here for me. And I owe the first one that I grow that flowers very early, which is um, Cedric Morris. And that will be in flower usually around Christmas week this year. It was even earlier. Um, and then they go right through right to May. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's all about, you know, choosing the right bulbs. If you you pick, you can have an, you can have Narcissus in flower really from December right through to May. Yeah, it's amazing, really. When which is, yeah. And I think that's possibly the pitfall that a lot of people, you know, just they, they go in and they get whether that's a singular variety or whatever, but they're they're not getting any longevity out of them because individually they don't flower for a huge length of time. So if they only buy one type or they only have, you know, a couple of types, they, they, they don't get that longevity that you're talking about there. But with a bit of careful planning and it might take a few years to build up the, the numbers, but a bit of planning you could have, as you say, flower from December through to May. Absolutely. And I mean, well, I have my own ideas on what kind of colour schemes I like. So right now, kind of January, February, March, 
you know, a lot of the narcissists are really the strong yellows. Yeah. And then after that, I, I'm not a great fan of, of the strong yellow. So I grow a lot of the creams and the whites. So narcissists like Talia, um, Nivet, I'm trying to think of them, Snow Baby. I grow a lot of the smaller, smaller um, narcissists, you know, n- yeah. miniatures, because they withstand our climate and our weather much better than the very tall ones. Like if you're sitting here now where I am looking out on the estuary, like after the storms of the last few days, the very tall ones really get hammered, whereas the short ones that they're able to bounce back. Yeah, um, just, the big ones are just getting blown over too much and, and ra- rattle too much. Yeah, but having said that, I'm really fond of the um, historic daffodils. I, I I love the kind of old world, and they're very beautiful. They're very dainty. They're very elegant. Um, they don't have that kind of full-on heaviness of the more newer bred ones. So I grow varieties like seagull, lily langtree, um, white lady, uh, geranium. They're just beautiful. And they really do stand up very well to the weather as well. And so they're old sort of heritage varieties that are heritage less... varieties, pro- yeah. Yeah, yeah so they're less prolific than the than the newer varieties. Well, the likes of, 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 of Lily Langtree, White Lady, Seagull are very good doers. I mean, right. I started off here with a few bulbs. Um, I'm, t- I'm going back nearly 30 years and there, there was a wonderful buyer for Roach stores in Cork and they had a little garden section and I would go in there regularly and you would always pick up um, pots of the most unusual plants that you wouldn't get at that time in the garden yeah. centres. So my first trillium came from Roche's stores as well, believe it or not. And it's a, it must be at least, uh, I'd say, 30, 40 centimetres across now in, in, in width. Wow. And and you got those original ones. Like, that's unusual, really, isn't it? In, yeah, there, the, I, 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 can't, I know that it was a man who did the buying for the garden section there. And it was always a treat to go there because you, you just got plants that you never saw anywhere else. Yeah, that's amazing because that wouldn't happen nowadays. Do um, you know that it, it would be no. the, no. it would be the sort of mass produced plant Absolutely. that you can get anywhere. You, you certainly wouldn't get. S- yeah. And that's how I got into kind of sourcing plants from places that you, you just get something different. Another go-to nursery at the time, which is long gone now, was the Hardy Plants Nursery. I think they were based in Ballybrack in Dublin. Right. And when I started gardening here, the plants would arrive from them wrapped in newspaper and they'd come in the post. And again, built up a very good collection of Bergenias, wooden enemies. You know, again, plants that you just didn't see when you went to the garden centre. Yeah, yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Surprised with the Roche store one there. Um, yeah. So that's so the early, the early phase of the year is your snowdrops and you know your narcissi and then you mentioned that woodland was a was a huge passion and exotics so maybe just tell about those yeah i'm looking out now into the front garden and at the moment it's a wash of color so there is a, a very big hellebore collection here um and with a little bit of work with hellebores you know you get several months i don't think there's any plant that gives such good value 
So really this year they were quite early flowering. I mean, they were probably the beginning of January, the first of them started showing blooms and I still have some very good colours. So my project this year is to move some of them and now is a really good time to do that, move them in the green. And I'm actually putting all my blocks of colour together. So one bed is just going to be yellow helibores. Um, I'm keeping all the pinks in another area, all the whites in another. And maybe I, I love these kind of very, very dark slaty plum ones as well. And the very dark ones, I underplant them with cyclamen comb, the very dark pink one, which yeah. kind of lifts the darkness of those are right now just lots of nice sillas sitting under some of them. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're going to give me colour now for another, you know, I still get another few weeks. At the moment, I'm looking out the um, Aurum Criticum. It's just starting to flower and I just hope we won't get any late frost because it doesn't like that. The I suppose the foliage of the roses is looking good. All of the tulips are just showing. I actually have tulips in flower kind of wow. throughout the garden and a great tulip just here. I don't know whether it happens for other people, which seems to come back year after year is Doll's Minuet. So it's a lovely pointed kind of parrot tulip, a very vivid pink. And that's kind of splashed around the garden with ballerina. And what did you say that was called? Dolls? Dolls Minuet. And okay. it's just, for me, a good tulip that has come back, you know, year after year. And ballerina is a very good one for coming back as well. Yeah, because that, then, that is a problem with a lot of the modern day tulips. Is that Oh, they don't. I mean, it's quite an expensive hobby to plant tulips because like this year, I think I got carried them away more than ever. <laughs> so looking out the window, there's like a dozen big terracotta pots jammed now and I've done a lasagna bulbs in them. So they're layered. Yeah, they were fabulous last year. So they were so good. I said, right, go for more pots. So I have the same in the back garden. Yes, yeah. but they're they're all bred now for well, not not, not all, but yeah. the majority well, of them are bred I, now I, for I, one season, I basically. Take some of these to the nursery bed and I you know, just pop some in there. The rest I give to friends and they put them into their gardens. Because I, I like once the growing season starts here, there is no space here in the garden to pop any more bulbs in, really. And I've learned my lesson because you, you will forget no matter how much you think you know your garden. I'll go and I'll say, oh, God, there's a gap there. Yeah. And I dug down through the nose of a trillium or something. And that's heartbreaking. So it's not <laughs> worth it just to have a tulip popping up. And for you to go and dig a hole and slice through something very precious. Yes, yes. Um, you, just to go back a second, you said with with helibores, with a with a small bit of work, they can be successful. Yeah. So, what yeah. do you mean by a small bit of work with yeah, helibores? Good housekeeping. So it used to be kind of the job I do coming up to Christmas: take all the leaves off the Oriental helibores. They're the Orientalis, which would be normally kind of Easter flowering. Uh, now I do it in November and you take all the leaves off and the, those leaves do not go to the compost bin because they can carry virus. OK, so they're they're cleaned off. And really, that's a good time to mulch them as well. And um, again, um, now once they've come just starting to show flower, I give them um, pelleted seaweed, you know, a kind of a granular feed of seaweed. OK, and, um, that. They, they seem to like. And you must be vigilant with helipores as well. If you do see any kind of blackening on the stems or on the leaf or on the flower, you know, cut the stems off. If 
the plant still seems to carry this kind of, we'll call it virus or fungus, it's really better to dig it up and get rid of it. Right. And yeah, I've never heard of of those problems with, with helibores previously. So that is that is something that occurs. And if you get it, you need to be yeah. harsh. You need to be harsh with yeah. it, really. Yeah, I know Helen used to refer to it as the black death, but look, we don't see it that often, but it's just something you do need to be aware of. Yeah. And, and the other thing, I did hate them. Okay. Um, like, yeah. on, you want to collect seed for a specific reason. For years, I didn't deadhead them, and I regret not deadheading because you, you might buy, a, a, we'll say, a fabulous double, uh, an enemy-centered one, and it's a gorgeous deep pink. And if you let that go to seed, inevitably the seeds will drop into the parent plant and in a few years you've other we'll say rogues coming up through it which are nothing to write home about and they ruin your parent plant yeah that's really interesting now because you've said a couple of things there again a bit like what you what you said with the bulbs so people said don't feed bulbs people also say that you just plant helibores and more or less forget about them but you're saying there is things that are essential to keeping them vibrant and i've seen yeah, well i i mean we mulch here pretty heavily about every second year or maybe sometimes we, we'd wait three years and we we use a lot of our own compost but we wouldn't have enough to do the whole garden so we get the uh, com- garden compost from down in east cork it's a, a municipal site and you buy it there and it's okay. pretty good it's not 100 percent clean but it's pretty good but actually robert is a great advocate of feeding Robert Miller at, at Altamont are feeding um, the helibors, so he has me you now feeding them as well. And I actually think when I go to Altamont and walk the, the wall garden there, the helibors and the snowdrops always look so healthy. Yeah, well, that's what I was just saying, because you had something up on Instagram in the last week or two about, you know, about 10 pictures of your helibors and they were they were very, very, very healthy and very vibrant. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to hear these, you know, people have this thing, just plant helibores and leave them. So it's good to hear, you know, somebody expert saying that's not what you do. You actually do a little bit of tending to them to get the maximum benefit out of them. Yeah. And I do think that deadheading, unless you want to collect seed for some specific reason, um, it'll keep the parent plant, the plant that you chose for day for its color and it's it's beauty it'll keep it true yeah 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 no that that's that's a brilliant tip yeah brilliant tip now um so helibores what else have you you know from a woodland perspective because i know that's that's a huge feature of the garden yeah lots of trilliums and the earlies are, are flowering um lots of erythroniums um i've been posting some of those on on instagram recently and um just as i look out the hostas um, literally overnight because our temperatures have gone up um, some of the hostas are a good I suppose 15, 20 centimetres above ground now, others are just beginning to show so that's what I'm at actually at the moment in the nursery I'm I'm chopping the hostas and potting up some for sale That's amazing that you, you have some up 20 cent. it just, just goes to show the difference and this it's hugely important that people understand their own garden because I've hostas here and they are, there's no sign, not a, not yeah. even, they're completely asleep at this point. Um, so just, it, yeah. it shows the variance that you can have in areas. Can, and and also, you, you know, the fact that I, I'm very short here 
in time now for propagation, really. So because I like to have hostas propagated just as the noses are showing, because really, if you if you go after that, you, you do a lot of damage to the plants, lifting them. And mm-hmm. that, you know. So there, there's quite a short window now to get things like hostas, asters, flocks. Um, I do a lot of dactrilizes, you know, the hardy orchids. Yeah. Um, Roscoyas will be done now as well, even though they're not showing at all. But now you can do them right through the winter as well. So there's a huge amount of work to get done. Yeah, and in a short space of time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about trilliums, because I know I've seen uh, Jimmy Blake, I think, has quite is quite successful with trilliums as well. But they're not that easy to grow, sure they're not. No, they're, they're actually very easy to grow. Are they? I find them here in, this is a dryish garden again, but, and so some woodland plants like a little bit more moisture. So erythroniums do, you know, fairly well here, but they're no way as successful as trilliums. The trilliums do really well here. So the big thing with trilliums, I think, is buy your plants in the green. That means they're growing in a pot when you see them. Don't buy them as shriveled up little bits that you get sometimes in a package in some of the centres that sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you have to be patient. You have to pay money for them. They're not cheap. And you have to be patient because really from seed to get a trillium to its flowering stage, it's seven years. Wow. And um, that's why they're expensive when you buy them. Yeah. But, and you have to be patient. You have to wait a few years for that plant to bulk up. And um, what kind of site and soil will work woodland, for Woodland, as I call it, woodsy soil, plenty of leaf mould. absolutely adore it. Good, open, friable soil and away they'll go. And actually, once they're happy, they start seeding. I've spotted quite a lot of seedlings down in the bottom garden. And there I Again, another job to be done, try and get them out before somebody tr- tramples on them, you know, because they're gone out into the patch. But they, they're they not difficult at all. And they're just the most amazing plant. I mean, if they never flowered, their foliage is just utterly stunning. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And do like for anybody listening, do invest in at least one, one or two. Chloropetalum. It's probably the first one I started with, and it's 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 easy. It has the most exotic-looking leaf. Um, soon now I'll post some of these because they're just starting to come into their own. Um, Albedum, which is um, a big, bold, white-flowered one, just a little faint dot of pink in, in the inner chalice, and that has the most incredible scent. You'll smell that before you see it. And I like to intermingle all that area with just uh, forget-me-not. And that seeds itself readily all around the garden and it kind of unifly, unifies the whole planting and lots of sillas as well. Muscari is looking good out there now. And just the very early emergence of all the different Brunneras and Pulmonarias and Euphorbias kind of bring, you know, the whole thing together. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And then in relation to cannas and ginger plants, so you said already how you're able to leave them out all year. And they're, they're a huge feature. Is there any other exotics that, that you're you're growing that do well for you? Well, I suppose when we started off here, like I think everybody, when they started off, we all bought maybe one or two or three different conifers. And you thought, oh, they'll be my evergreens. For me, 
kind of 10, 15 years down the line, there were these big green blobs that kind of were pretty dead in the centre and got too big really for the small garden. So my evergreens in the garden now are Scheffleris. And a, a, a little bit tricky because we're quite windy here. But um, I just think they're such a magnificent plant and they've got such fantastic foliage. I grow Tetrapanix rex. It's a big plant. It's very kind of big exotic leaf as well. It does very well here. Um, some of the more graceful, exotic looking um, Mahonias. So they're my, my, my evergreen base. Um, Roscoias, which are related to the gingers. I mentioned them earlier. Yep. So they, they come above ground kind of end of June, early July. And they will begin to flower kind of from July, August onwards. And they go right through to very end of October, if not longer. And I think they are just such a wonderful plant. And again, they're not difficult and they are totally hardy. But they've got the most wonderful colours, starting from whites to deep purples to reds to pinks and um, fabulous foliage as well with wonderful stems. So I grow some in the garden, but I grow a lot in big pots. And the reason I have them in pots is so that I can propagate easier from them and I don't have the space in the ground. So they're kind of my, my... first exotic that kind of starts yeah. the summer off. The chefra is super for structure as well, isn't it? Obviously, it's yeah. It looks, it's almost like an umbrella over over a bed. Um, in that it's it's tall, but it's yeah. it's tall, but it's not imposing. So really nice. As I say, Jimmy Blake has them again, and they look almost yeah. like uh, sort of umbrellas over the over the rest of the border. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy is very blessed there in that he 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 would have, I suppose, the shelter of 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 the woodland there. Yeah. I I moved some now this year. We we did a new bed in the back garden. We we took out um two mature trees which were really, you know, I I it they had gone past their sell by date really, and even though it was a difficult decision to take out two mature trees, one was a birch and one was a beech, um. It opened up all that area and it just gave me a whole new planting scheme. So the, the Scheffler's have been put back into place there, but it's we've had incredible winds here yeah. in the last two months. And, you know, it's taken, they're, they're very badly damaged at the moment. So obviously, yes, they'll recover, but long term, I'll just have to to keep an eye on it. So anybody wanting to grow Scheffler's, you really do need shelter. That's the number one. Other than that, they're quite hardy. Yeah, they're hardy and they'll grow in, they'll grow in, I won't say most soils, but they'll grow, they'll grow in yeah. no, normal garden soils. Yeah. So wind is the, is the big yeah. enemy then. It is. It, but having said that, like I, my biggest collection of trees in the garden is um, our maples, you know, the acers. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to believe, but they all succeed very well here, even though we are quite windy. Because I think once acers establish and they're good and woody, the winds don't really affect them as such. Yeah, I don't but the shepherd because they're such a big leaf are going to get shredded. Yeah, the problem the problem I have here, I had an acer a couple of years ago. Um anything anything that's what would you say that has a tender leaf on it struggles mm. here because we get notorious frost in in May pretty much every year. And what has happened, well, I've noticed what has happened for the last few years is we're getting this 
very warm weather through February and March. So the plant bursts into life, bursts into, into growth. And then you get the hard frost on the new growth in, mm-hmm. in May. And I lost a very, like I had four, gone for four years. So it should have been established and I had got through four years. But, mm. but the May, May frost basically took off all the new growth and the plant died. Yeah, so it was it was disappointing because I, I knew it was going to be a struggle, but I thought after getting through sort of the first year or two that it would be okay, but no. Yeah, we don't tend to get you can be caught, but it might be just one one night or one you know, one morning where the frost will catch. Yeah. And you need to I suppose get, learn to know where the patches are in your garden as well. Yeah, funny so, that that particular frost, it actually completely killed all the growth on a beach hedge, all the new growth on a beach hedge. Now, obviously, a beach hedge. We, we, we would never, like, I've never experienced yeah. a frost like that. Yeah, no, no, as I say, beach, no problem, it'll come back. But it was amazing that yeah. there was so much lovely growth on it. And then it, it literally yeah. was blackened overnight. Yeah. Um, so it was it was that type of a frost. I don't think um, it would have been difficult to to plan to, you know, it was so heavy that it would. I don't think anything would have saved it, really. So. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of other things, I suppose. The the Cork Alpine Society, specifically in relation to that, is like garden clubs are really good for for people to be involved in. Especially, it doesn't matter whether you're an experienced gardener or a new gardener. Garden clubs, I think, what they give you is they give people access to years of experience from other members. I think that's a huge factor in it. So maybe tell us a little bit about. The garden club that you're involved in? Yeah, I, we began the Cork Alpine Hardy Plant Society back in the 90s. And at that stage in Cork, you already had the Cork Garden Club and you had the Irish Garden Plant Society had a group as well, and they're both still still going. Um, but we felt that there was a niche, and the late Brian Cross actually was one of the founding members of, of the of our group. Um, that there was a niche there for people who wanted to learn even more and, you know, bring more expert speakers in on specific areas of plants as well. So at that stage, our group was affiliated and still is to the Alpine Society in England and okay. to the Hardy Plant Group. And um, I have been secretary of that group. I'm actually, I, I, I couldn't honestly tell you how long. A long time. Long. Yeah. It's one of these but perennial been, jobs that just. Yeah, it's been a wonderful experience over the years because like we've had everyone you could think of from Roy Lancaster to John Massey. Just last week we had uh, Tamsin Westthorpe from uh, West uh, Stockton Bury Gardens in England um, Jim German from Branklin in Scotland, all over, really. Actually, yeah. this coming month now, April, um, we're going to have a Zoom lecture with Dan Benarchik from Chanticleer Gardens in the USA. Wow. And um, we've a very good membership and people just love it. We took to Zoom in October and it's been the lifeline really for the members to just absolutely love it. They all look forward to seeing each other on screen on, on the Thursday night. We meet on the fourth Thursday of the month and um, it's, it's very popular. And uh, we try and vary, I, like I book the speakers, so I try and vary the lectures 
So we we run between maybe an interest in all points some of the months. And like, say, for instance, if, if we had been not locked down, we should have had the head of the Munich Botanic Gardens uh, coming to speak to us about Alpines. Wow. So she spent five months of the year up in the Schacken in Germany, which is the only Alpine garden on the top of a mountain in, down in Bavaria, which I visited a few years ago. So she would have been here. Um, to speak to us, we'll say, in the flesh if we had not been in lockdown. Yeah, that would have been nice, but still, nonetheless, Zoom Zoom is working out pretty, pretty oh, well. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we just have to plan ahead now for, the, you know, into next autumn. We were due to have Cassian Smith from Hermannshof in Germany as well. So whether or not we'll go ahead with him on Zoom or we'll wait to have him come in person, all these things have to be ironed out, you know. But, um, yeah, we've had and, and we kind of, I kind of like to vary the topics. So we had Jason Ingram. Now he, you probably might know the name. He does a lot of the photography for all the top magazines, like Gardens Illustrated. You see him on the um, the Telegraph, the Guardian. So he actually gave us um, last month's lecture on his pick of favourite gardens. But the photography, it was just absolutely stunning. People loved it. Yeah, you know? I don't know. I don't know him now. But who who did he pick as his favourite garden? Just as a matter of interest. He, he had a very unusual choice of gardens and there weren't ones that we would think of offhand. And you've, you've caught me now. I'd have yeah. to go to my ah, yeah, no, no, no worries. It was yeah. just, well, so it was interesting to hear that. Featured in it, but there were others that um, obviously I, I wouldn't have known. So now they're on my list to visit. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah. So as I say, garden clubs definitely worthwhile for people in that, you know, they, they can lean on others experience. And then obviously mm-hmm. you have these expert speakers and uh, expert talks as well on specific yeah. topics. But I yeah. think I think a huge part of it is to be able to lean on the experience of of other members as well, which is especially for for people who are looking to develop a garden of yeah. of whatever sort whether it's a, a a starter garden or whether it's you know to increase an already quite good garden it's it's good to have that experience you know to know what people what other people grow what works and what doesn't work so i think that's a huge part of it it is it's all about meeting people and they love their their cup of tea and chat afterwards and they love to get to meet the speaker you know and we have usually have um a raffle so plants are brought in and every so often, you know, to keep funds up, we t- we have a plant sale as well. And of course, we go to visit each other's gardens and we plan an outing every year. So we should have been up to see Carl Wright's garden in the Bourne last May, which obviously didn't happen. The previous year, we'd been up to Jimmy and June's and to Pathana Garden. So, yeah, th- that's a, a big part of it. Yeah, as they're, well, they're three nice gardens. Uh, Jimmy's, Jimmy's, Pathana and June's. Yeah, very nice. Um, you're an active member of the RHSI as well. I'm on the board of the RHSI. I have been now for, I think, the last three years. Very interesting. You learn a lot as well from, you know, being involved at that level and just looking at things from a different angle altogether. And um, I think the, the RHSI are, are, again, are going from strength to strength because um, in particular at the moment with Zoom, it has allowed members down the country to be very involved in the lectures that are going on, you know. Yeah. And I think actually looking ahead to the future, um, the use of Zoom will probably continue, I think, for a lot of groups because it it, it, it will give 
that chance for people who live a long ways from, we'll say, where the lecture is being held, that maybe at certain times of the year, um, the Zoom lectures will be put online so that people, you know, if the weather is bad or you're living a long distance, it'll allow you to participate in some of them. I definitely, yeah, for, for the likes of those expert and, and sort of master classes and all that type of thing, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely the way it will stay because, now not not all the time, but, but for the most part, mm-hmm. because, you know, if if a, an expert master class on Alpines, as an example, is going to be two hours long, mm-hmm. And somebody has to travel from the other side of the country or the other end of the country. It's it's a big investment of time to, to do that. Whereas, it is. So it's my, it's, yeah, it will open up those avenues. Definitely. And when you speak of masterclass, we were to have a masterclass here last April with Annie Guilfoyle. She's a very well-known garden designer, um, Chelsea um, Judge, etc. And I was to do the planting end of it, the lecture. She was doing the design. It was a full day. And of course, it was cancelled. We rebooked for June of this year and now that is cancelled. So we're hoping, fingers crossed, that it will go back to April of 2022, which is hard to believe. Yeah, it's hard to believe and a little bit sad in a way. But um, Mm. I suppose the only good thing is that you would think that there's going to be a lot of demand for that type of thing when when people are able to get moving again. So that's uh, hopefully a positive out of it. Some of your your own on your website, some of your the names of your courses, Spring Awakens, Treasures to Dig for, uh, The Lazy Hazy Days of Summer, A Tale of Shade. Some your names are brilliant. Yeah, well, I've added to a lot of those now, but I must say I'm not very techy. So there's a lot of work to be done on that website. And I kind of always long if we got a couple of bad days that I might stay inside and do some work like that. Yeah, but as I said, the names, they, they would really entice you, to be honest. I was looking at them earlier and they're very good. Um, We're sort of wrapping up here now and it has been mm-hmm. a fascinating chat. We could probably talk for another couple of hours, to be honest, because there's so much in it. But um, I know you're quite active on Instagram, but so maybe just tell people where they can find you and your website and so on. Yeah, it's just, well, on Instagram, it's Hester Ford. So it's pretty easy to find. Yep. And it was kind of, I suppose, the lifesaver for me because I'm not really a social media person. But I did uh, start posting very early in the first lockdown and have continued ever since. The website is www.hesterfordgarden.com and you'll get most of the details there. Um, and that's Ford, and think, F-O-R-D-E rather than F-O-R-D. Yeah, and actually if you, if you, if you Google it, it'll just come up. Yeah. And hopefully we might see some people later in the summer if things open up a little bit. Yeah, it'd be great to welcome people back because it is, in a way, it's a shame for, for somebody with a garden of, of your standard to to have it all going on and I know you can you can post on it but it, it it can't I suppose for you you can't beat having people coming in and you know interacting with them I would imagine is no and I suppose the other thing is a garden never stays the same and I go back to Helen Dale and Helen always had this saying oh you should have come yesterday because <laughs> you know there are times that you just really want to share it and they go and you may never again get that moment, you know, as good. Yeah, it's mad the way it changes because funny, I, I interviewed, uh, yeah, so I interviewed TJ from Patana Garden uh, last, I think it was May, but I had been I had been in the garden the previous month or maybe, maybe I interviewed in June. I had been there in May. And uh, as I say, when I went the first time just for a visit, it was stunning. 
And then when I went back to do the interview on an evening a month later, and it was it was basically four weeks, you would actually think you were in a different garden. It was oh, incredible. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that was really interesting to see how much of a change there was in in the in the month. Absolutely. And a garden never stays the same. And even from year to year. And that's what I say to people, because some people think, oh, I've been to that garden. I've seen it. But listen, you could go to like TJ's or Jimmy's or Helen's or any of them a couple of times, at least a couple of times a year. Yeah. And it's forever changing. Well, hopefully when things get back to somewhat normality i'll be able to get down and see kashin garden myself i'd hey, certainly like to see that and hester it has been super as i say we could talk for longer but uh yeah we're 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 up on 40 minutes here now so that has been a brilliant chat and thank you very very much for coming on master my garden podcast you're very welcome so that's been a super chat as i said we could talk for hours hester has unbelievable plant knowledge to be fair and it's across sort of diverse ranges of plants so from your your bulbs right through to the woodland and through to exotics and it's it's great to have somebody with with so much knowledge and some really interesting tips there that you don't typically hear like feeding bulbs which a lot of people say don't feed them no need to feed them and hellebores again typically people say put those in and no real care with them but again a small bit of care and a small bit of attention and a couple of tips there and you can have you know better than better than the average hellebores let's say so it's been a fantastic chat Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast please share it with all your gardening friends and you can find me on instagram and on facebook both at master my garden and that's been this week's episode and until the next time happy gardening (music) 